The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we're back, and this was a hospital medicine show tonight, huh? (laughs) Yep, no one would argue, Matt. How are you? (laughs) We're talking about acute pancreatitis, and Paul, I imagine as a primary care doctor, you don't see much of that, but fortunately, we have two great hospitalists with us from our hospital medicine team who we'll introduce in a second, but uh, Paul, before you do that, can you tell people what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have our, our cash-like hospitalist experts with us, uh, Drs. Meredith Trubit and Monia Amin, um, both of whom will tell us a little bit more about our guests and our topic. Why don't we start with um, Meredith? Meredith, lovely to see you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what we talked about tonight? Sure. Uh, so we had a great guest with Dr. Kaveh Sharzi, and uh, we talked a little bit about acute pancreatitis, walked through a first case with a little bit more uh, mild case to go through kind of the diagnostic workup, and then a second case to go through a little bit more of the complications of acute pancreatitis. And a little bit more about Dr. Sharzi, Dr. Kaveh Sharzi, he is, uh, he earned his medical degree from Tehran University in Tehran, Iran. He completed residency in internal medicine at Henry Ford in Detroit, as well as fellowship in hepatology at the University of Miami in Florida, gastroenterology at Penn State University, and advanced endoscopy at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He served as gastroenterology faculty at Temple University in Philadelphia before joining OHSU faculty in Portland, Oregon. His clinical interest is benign pancreatic disease, and he currently serves as the medical director of endoscopy and the co-director of total pancreatectomy with Islet Auto Transplant Program at OHSU. No puns? (laughs) Ain't nothing acute about it? What? (laughs) A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Kaveh, take two. So the the audience, uh, for the audience, this is take two here. We had some, uh, we had cat-related technical difficulties, which I'm sure surprises no one in our audience, Paul. It it really can't. It's usually um, not but Kaveh, me, though, but yes. <laughs> it's usually not. That's true. Kaveh, can you give the audience, tell them a little bit about yourself. They've heard your bio, but tell them a little bit about yourself, how you describe yourself, and hobby or interests outside of medicine. Sure. Um, I'm 44 years old. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm also a husband and a father of two sons. When I'm not too busy with work, I build and collect Legos. You can see a couple in the background right there. And I'm also a very avid reader of automobile magazines. If you ask me right now about uh, Charger Hellcat Model 2019, I might be able to recall some of the specs (laughs) of that. Um, And um, I also love the famous sitcom Friends. Me and my wife, we're sort of addicted to it to some extent. So we we, we watch that over and over. There's got to be a Friends rewatch podcast. I bet you that exists. There's, I know there's one for The Office. There has to be many of them. Yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. many offshoots. Um, you know, Leather Pants will go down as a great episode. Pivot. <laughs> Pivot's the best episode. 
<laughs> All right, this is going to devolve. Paul, you better you better ask your question. Yeah, usually I ask about books, um, but I, I actually I don't have um, I don't have the bandwidth for books right now. I'm now stacked back up, so I will ask about the the Legos. I in the background, right where I'm pointing is the Ecto One Ghostbusters car. That was my favorite thing that I put together from Legos. So I'm going to ask you what your favorite Lego set was, which is maybe the nerdiest question I think I've ever asked on this show, which is saying a lot. Um, so the the nerdiest Lego I have, I guess, it's a 2003 or four pirate ship. Uh, I think it's it's hard to find. So it's almost a collector's item. About how many pieces? And then I'm done nerding out. Uh, I think it's I think it's eighteen hundred. I'm just going off. Oh. <laughs> that is exciting. Well, Paul, uh, maybe maybe you could send Paul a picture of it. I, I think I we will. should. I, I think sure. we should. <laughs> we should give uh, Meredith or Monia a chance to ask anything else before we get on to the main topic here. I have no frame of reference for what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> My recording studio, our basement has stairs that come down the middle, and my recording studio is to the left. To the right is 20,000 Legos. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. The, 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 it's, it's magnificent. You know, 10 years, worth, 10 years worth of Legos. So I do have a frame of reference. 1,800 is a very large Lego set. Okay. Yeah. Like outside but, of stepping on one and hurting my foot, like it, I got nothing. <laughs> this is why the two of us are friends. <laughs> <laughs> Similar right. things happen to me. All right, Kave, Um, Why don't you tell us what kind of is the best advice you've gotten throughout your career? Um, I mean, boy, I mean, there are so many good advices I got, but a very practical, simple advice I actually not re- recently received, not not uh, more than a couple years ago, is to have a monthly planner and set three goals for a day, three for a week, three for a month, and then keep updating it on a weekly basis. And and it has helped me tremendously because we always want to do more and more and say, oh, I want to do five tasks a day. And it's just not practical. And keeping it simple, I think, has really helped me a lot in managing my my work and my work-life balance. I think it's pretty easy to overestimate how much you can get done in a day, and it, it, you're going to feel bad if you don't if you if you try to do five things and you don't get to them. I, I think it's nice that you're setting that goal. That sounds great. I feel like that extends to like lots of things. For instance, working out. It's not always possible to do even a half hour. Five minutes might be the best that I can do. <laughs> so keeping it simple and keeping realistic expectations, I think, is always a good plan. Yeah. It's like making your bed is a small win for the day is uh, one thing that I've heard people say. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Audience, we've had BetterHelp as a sponsor for over a year now. And as you know, I was using BetterHelp long before they were our sponsor on the show because I think taking care of your mental health is really important and should be one of the most important things that we all do. But... Let's face it, a lot of us don't do it because there's a lot of barriers. Maybe you worry about stigma. Maybe you just feel like you don't have time to go to a therapist's office, and maybe it's hard for you to find a therapist and switch to one you like. Well, BetterHelp, they can solve all that because they make it easy to sign up. You can get started with a therapist in under 48 hours, and it's really easy to switch therapists if you don't like the person you're paired with initially. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways for us, And in a world that's telling us all to do more, sleep less, and just grind all the time, I wanted to remind you to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. 
BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, so give it a try and see if online therapy can lower your stress. Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com curb. That's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. So since we have limited time, Meredith, would you take us to our first case from Cashlack? Sure. So our first case is Mr. Johnson. He's a 40-year-old man with no known past medical history. But when you're asking him, he tells you he hasn't seen a doctor since he was at the pediatrician. But he presents to the hospital with a raw, dull, aching, burning epigastric pain that radiates to his back. He reports that the pain started acutely last night after his nightcap. And when you start asking him a little bit more information about his nightcap, he elaborates and tells you that he drinks a fifth of vodka nightly, actually. His vitals are significant for a heart rate of 111, but everything else is normal. And then his physical exam is unremarkable except for um, tenderness of palpation in the epigastric region. His labs are notable for a slightly elevated white count of 14.3 and an elevated lipase of 491. He has an elevated AST at 91 and a slightly elevated ALT at 45, but ALKFOS is normal at 54. And in the ER, they had ordered a CT abdomen and pelvis which showed peripancreatic stranding um, and no fluid collection and some hepatic steatosis. So in thinking about this case, um, Kave, is there other information that you would like to gather from the history and physical that may help you in thinking about his diagnosis? Um, so that's a great question, Meredith. And I think because even though we want to be try to be very comprehensive in our assessment, this case, at least a description of it, it's fairly straightforward in the sense that you're defining a very classic presentation of acute pancreatitis. You're describing you know, acute symptoms, um, the classic type of pain, and um, also demonstrating um, a lipase elevation. I'm assuming this is probably more than three times, but I don't have a reference here. And as a bonus, we ha also have a CT scan, which is showing already a peripancreatic stranding. So in regards to diagnosis, I think there may not be more information needed at this juncture. Uh, two things I would like to know in this patient, which are co-variables for the severity of the disease and helps me prognosticate him, is one is what is his BMI currently? Because we know severity of acute pancreatitis, it is much more pronounced in patients with heavy BMI or metabolic syndrome. And um, smoking status. Again, another predictor that the disease could be more severe or if there could be more associated chronic pancreatitis in the setting of uh, tobacco use. So that would be sort of two other pieces of information which I think would be helpful to know at the beginning when assessing the patient. Otherwise, may not need much more information at this very juncture. So that's interesting that you bring up those two as kind of risk factors um, for maybe worse prognosis. Um, and so could you also then talk a little bit about some of the other scoring systems that we may or may not use like during acute pancreatitis and kind of their value for them? Um, or are these two other things maybe more valuable? So th this might be a good segue into the, the scoring system question. Um, I think over the course of years, multiple 
and different scoring systems have developed to assess or help us assess severity of um, acute pancreatitis. Um, I don't know, Ranson score, Apache score, which essentially they all have one issue or, or issues with low specificity. I mean, basically, they have a fairly high rate of false positives, all of these scoring systems. And when you couple this with a fairly low prevalence of acute, uh, sorry, of severe acute pancreatitis or severe um, to moderate to severe acute pancreatitis, then you are um, resulting in a fairly low positive predictive value. So despite of these being in discussed for over years and decades, um, it's not been used that often and it's sort of fallen out of favor in many instances. Perhaps one of the most reliable and the best metric to assess acute pancreatitis, and it's been something which has been more or less referenced in more recent guidelines, is the Atlanta classification, or more accurately, the revised Atlanta classification, which simplifies acute pancreatitis into under two buckets of type and severity. So you have the two types. One is interstitial edematous pancreatitis pathway or, or type, and then you have the necrotizing, acute necrotizing type. And in regards to severity, you have mild, severe, and moderate. And it's very easy and practical system to use. By definition, mild is when there is no organ failure and there is no local complication. For example, the case you described does fall into this category because at least based on what we have so far, this is pretty, there's no, we're not seeing evidence of organ failure and imaging was um, unremarkable in that sense of having any local complication at this juncture. And then we have severe, which is persistent organ failure, either respiratory, cardiac, or renal on a modified Marshall scoring system. And then moderate is sort of falls in between. It's either transient organ failure, which resolved in 48 hours, or local complications without organ failure. So it's very easy to use, it's very practical, and I think it's been a very valuable tool um, in trying to assess and manage acute pancreatitis. Yeah, I love that breakdown. Because the classically, you'd always hear people talking about like the Apache and the Ranson score. And I mean, I think it's just practical to size the patient up and think about SERS criteria and then just classifying it the way that you that you were telling us. I, I, one thing that struck me about that is oftentimes we have the C, CT scan because the ER, you know, I, I can't judge them. I don't work down there. They they get a lot of these patients just end up coming in with a CT scan, but it's not required to make the diagnosis, right? You can just make it by the three times upper limit normal lipase and then just the classic symptoms. So maybe we wouldn't know if they have the, the interstitial edematous or the necrotizing, but we could still grade it as mild, moderate, severe based on just clinically what's happening. I'm not sure if that's how you think about it as well. And, and can you comment on what you look at? Like what worries you about this patient or doesn't worry you about this patient? Like when you're sizing someone up? So I think that you bring up two good points. One is imaging. We can talk about it right now or a little bit later if you want to. And one is how we sort of try to assess the severity in a, in a particular patient. Yeah. Let, let's table the imaging and let's do this. Let's, let's go with the severity. Yeah. So for s severity, I mean, essentially in this particular patient that we describe, 
we're we are not seeing any changes in oxygenation. We're not seeing you know hemodynamic instability beyond just a mild tachycardia, and there is a Marshall scoring system that we can look at, and if someone scores essentially more than two in each category, that defines organ failure. If if not, then there is no organ failure, or that doesn't categorize as organ failure. So in this particular patient, looking at him, to the initial assessment, it sounds to be mild acute pancreatitis. We may not know if it's interstitial edematous at this juncture or necrotizing. It may not even be important at this juncture to know this information. As I mentioned earlier, what I want to know about, does this patient have any other risk factors that impacts his management, uh, including does he have you know uncontrolled blood sugar? Does he have ketoacidosis? Does he have diabetes on top of this? Does he have is he a smoker, which could signify more severe disease? And if he's an obese or morbid obese slash metabolic syndrome category, that will yeah. uh, make us worried. But short of that, I think this is fairly uncomplicated mild pancreatitis based on the description. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like you, you're you not, not as worried about this guy because he, he doesn't have organ failure. He's got a little bit of tachycardia. We'll see if we can fix that. And then he doesn't, we haven't given you that he's a smoker, that he has hyperglycemia that's severe or that he's got a really high BMI. So, okay, thank you. That That's helpful. So finding out whether someone has tobacco use or obesity or or even like the the prognostic scores like the Apache or the, the Ranson, I think something I always struggle with at initially, how does that change your management? We'll get into management stuff, but I mean, short of saying, oh, I should be more nervous about this person. Like how does it change anything in terms of your initial workup at all? So I think if if the patient is demonstrating organ failure, it does change how you want to treat the patient at least or house them in a in the right place. If someone is already showing evidence of, you know, respiratory failure, if they're already tachypneic or they're having low saturation, or if you're getting a blood gas on them and their uh, FI2 is low, so you're getting more worried about these patients that they are they already have multi organ failure at the very get go. And those are patients you may want to have a low threshold for an intensive care unit evaluation or care. And then I think you manage them as based on their organ failure. If you're someone is getting into uh, persistent hypotension, pers- you know, tachycardia, um, remain person hypotensive, they, they might need ICU level of care for more aggressive fluid management. They may need monitoring of their CVP and renal output if they're evolving into that multi-organ failure sort of pathway. Yeah. Before we get too far into treatment, there's just one piece that I think always sort of looms over everyone, which is this like you kind of brushed on the lipase value being, you know, I don't know if it's three times the upper limit of normal, but um, I think one of the things that I frequently run into when I'm um, working with learners is this tendency to want to trend the lipase and sort of what utility, if if any, is there in trending a lipase? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Moni. Um, I often have arguments during rounds about this because trainees sometimes want to trend and say, oh, the patient is better because the lipase is better today. And the, that has zero value almost in my mind in managing these patients. Um, and that, it's not a, my necessary, my personal it's, it's per, uh, idea. It's, it's, it's um, I mean, we know based on good amount of literature that the lipase value does not indicate severity it does not correspond with severity of disease and improvement of that does not also mean that the patient is improving i mean the clinical your clinical assessment of the patient evaluate your evaluate assessment of how the organs are perfusing or not that's 
way more valuable than the value of Lipase. So I discourage people from trending it or following that lab value. All right. I will reinforce yeah, that with so learners extensively. It's very, it's very, I know it's very tempting to trend, to trend anything. It makes us feel good to see it getting better. It's that that's just the, the nature of being an internist. Before we leave, since we're on diagnostics, I think now is a good time to talk about the imaging. And the guidelines would say first 72, I was surprised because I, because I see so many patients like this one coming in with a CT, but the guidelines would say start with an abdominal ultrasound. You're looking for kidney stones or sludge, or um, maybe you can tell us what else you look for in that. But, and, and I even read that, that sometimes in the first 72 to 96 hours, if it takes that long for necrosis to develop, so it might not be worth getting it in the first 72 hours anyway. Can you speak to how you think about it? Uh, so no, this is this is a great question, Matt, and I think you're you're touching on a very important part of the information that your CT scan in the first you know two days or 48 hours has very limited value in, in helping you manage the patient. It might serve if you if the other two aspects of a diagnosis, the symptomatology or the lipase, is equivocal and you need that third arm or third item to help make the diagnosis. But if you already have a clinical diagnosis based on the symptoms and, and lipase or amylase elevation, there is no need for a CT scan or cross-sectional imaging in general in patients um, because, number one, it won't impact how you're going to manage these patients. It does not show evolution into necrosis within the first er, earlier times, and it does not add to it. The, the, the only... Um, Imaging, which it comes frequently in guidelines, in AGA, ACG guidelines about management of acute pancreatitis would be done ultrasound with the purpose of evaluating for um, biliary stone and biliary sludge as a component or as a cause of acute pancreatitis. For example, in this patient in particular, you do have AST, ALT elevation which may query if there is possibility of a sludge or stone. So I think it might, it's a reasonable tool to do it early on. It's non-invasive, does not involve an IV contrast to affect the kidneys at this early stage. So I think it's a reasonable uh, test to do. Granted, this patient, probably the AST, ALT elevation is from alcohol use given the ratio of it. But I think it will be a useful tool at the early sets, especially if the history of alcohol is not as clear as depicted here. On that note with having, I know this case gives you a pretty clear alcohol-induced pancreatitis. When you have patients that come in similar to this where they give you a pretty clear alcohol history, is there much role to kind of be looking for alternative etiologies still to make sure, you know, there's not two things going on or do you kind of just stick with kind of what you already know? So that's a that's a great question. I think there are only really one or two other etiologies that it may impact your management early on. Uh, I mean, if this is alcohol-induced pancreatitis, there's not much to do about it in regards to etiology. Gallstone, you may need to know that, as you point out. Beyond that, the only two other things that you that could impact early management will be knowing the triglyceride and the calcium in the case that these are induced by hypercalcemia or hypertriglyceridemia. The triglyceride, I take it with, with a little bit of caution because sometimes in a setting of acute pancreatitis, it can elevate after a few days. So if it's done in you know, a week later and it's elevated, it might be secondary, not primary cause of pancreatitis. So that might be the two additional tests I order in, in, in regards to etiology because you may want to treat them aggressively 
if they're if if they turn to be the culprit for pancreatitis in in the um uh the first few days but beyond that i won't recommend doing more investigative uh, looking into things like autoimmune pancreatitis these are this is not the right time to investigate for those etiologies yeah that's helpful i think we kind of at the and we'll kind of come back to some transitions of care stuff that I think will be good discussion points. Um, I think we've hit the diagnostic stuff enough. So I think it's probably reasonable to sort of delve into some of the staples to management. So I think the age-old question starts with fluids. We know that's kind of the initial management for most patients that come in with pancreatitis. So I guess it's important to sort of think about what fluids to give, what, the, what grade, what amount, that sort of thing, um, before we kind of go from there. I think that the preferred fluid, I mean, there is not really much of a preferred fluid, but many references or many guides recommend lactic ringer over NS or normal saline. It's not something if if it's not available, it's it's, it's sort of a tiebreaker in my, ma- in my mind. It's going to be a, an issue for the patient if it's not available, but I think the preference is lactic ringer. And the only reason not to do, use LR if someone has history of a hypercalcemia-induced pancreatitis. But short of that, it could be used in pretty much all causes of acute pancreatitis. The fluid rate should be something around 5 to 10 ml per kg per hour. I think one of the key things I try to hammer a lot during rounds is the importance of fluid resuscitation within the first 24 to 48 hours. And if that time frame lapses, then after that, it does not really help much. Giving sort of liters of fluid during the first 24 hours, it could actually prevent patients evolving from interstitial pancreatitis into necrotizing pancreatitis. The reason for that is as the pancreatitis sort of evolves and we have increased build of interpancreatic pressure, that does contribute to further and further ischemia within the pancreas. So you do want to maintain adequate arterial supply to the pancreas so it does not evolve into necrotizing pancreatitis. So more important than the type of fluid, I think it's giving the amount of fluid very early on. Because once you fall, once the pancreas starts necrosing, then there is no sort of, you can't reverse that. There is no turning back from that point on. Hitting it with fluid very early on and something in the ballpark of two to 500 mLs even per hour in the first few hours, that can prevent your patient from developing necro- necrotizing pancreatitis. Not that all will be prevented or all causing necrotizing pancreatitis is, is hypo, is uh, inadequate resuscitation, but that's something that is very critical. The the LR versus saline thing is, I think, still being fought out. Paul, we're going to be talking about that again this week for a different topic, but there's a Lancet seminar paper from 2020 that came out on acute pancreatitis that in that one, they said that it looked like when they gave LR versus saline, it had decreased development of SIRS and reduced CRP concentrations, but not necessarily like hard clinical endpoints. But like you said, the guidelines do, uh, some of the guidelines recommend LR. So I, I think that's still being fought out, but it seems not not as crucial outside of the situations you said. I wanted to ask about pain though. I mean, some people, th- this Lancet article says use the WHO's pain treatment ladder, but what, what's your approach? Do you have any favorite medications, uh, not brand names, of course, but just any favorite medications or regimens, cocktails that you give patients? So I don't have much of a favorite pain regimen, but 
many references do recommend either hydromorphone or fentanyl, even though fentanyl sounds short-acting. But I think obtaining or achieving good pain control is, is very important as well in the early phases, not only for the patient's comfort, but actually if the patient if the pain remains persistent, that can actually it's by itself increase catecholamines and by itself can cause more you know vasoconstriction ischemia within the pancreas. So some believe um, some references do recommend trying to be fairly aggressive with pain management because decreasing the pain will decrease the catecholamine release and may in theory improve pancreatic perfusion and prevent ischemia again. So, I mean, I think there is a lot of different ways and different medications to control pain, but I think, at least in our institution, our preference is it's hard to morph on fentanyl. But that's sort of an institutional preference. This episode is sponsored by MedMastery. Audience, you've heard us mention MedMastery on the show before. MedMastery is a fun and effective way to learn really important clinical skills. It's an award-winning learning platform that's endorsed by the British Medical Association. What MedMastery is, they have these short videos with pre-tests and post-tests. They break concepts down into these easily digestible parts. So let's say, like me, you wanted to brush up on your EKG skills and build towards higher-level skills. Well, MedMastery has a great video course on that. Or maybe you want point-of-care ultrasound, how to interpret a chest X-ray, brush up on some echocardiography. These are just some of the great courses that MedMastery offers. And like I said, it's super practical, and the videos are fun and easy to go through. And they feature amazing educators like your favorite, Dr. Joel Toff, kidney boy himself. These courses are great for people working in internal medicine, family medicine, emergency medicine. The subscription is affordable, and all the courses are peer-reviewed and CME accredited. And residency programs can even ask about group subscriptions. Listeners of our show can claim a 15% lifetime discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders to claim your discount. Again, that's www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders. So, Kabe, back when I started residency, back when we were doing therapeutic leashes um, and <laughs> chicken sacrifices and stuff, um, we were there's this idea of bowel rest. So patients who are having symptoms of pancreatitis, you just didn't feed them because you might get the pancreas all kinds of excited, and then you would make things worse. And I, I, I think things have, have sort of evolved, but I, I would like to hear your thoughts on when we can feed these patients and sort of what that looks like depending on how severe the illness is. Uh, so I think this, this has evolved, and I think will continue to change and evolve over time. I think for cases of mild to moderate acute pancreatitis, uh, it's very reasonable to start early nutrition and early PO nutrition if the patient tolerates it. So as long as the patient does not have nausea, has not risk of vomiting or throwing up, and they're not exacerbating their pain too much by eating, I think that many resources, references are recommending early nutrition, even as early as 24 hours. And the sort of the preferred diet would be just a low-fat diet for these patients. Can and, I actually, before you move on, can I ask sure. about consistency? Because uh, I, I know this sounds bananas, and I'm sorry for those of you who are already experts in this, but I feel like I sometimes see misguided like puree diets or mechanical no, soft it diets. Does like, not, it, what are it, we doing here? Is it, that <laughs> Yeah, the consistency is not really of a significance as long as it remains low-fat. I think there is, Great, I mean, it could be, could be pureed, it could be solid. doesn't really matter in that sense. I usually just tell the patient not to have like a bacon cheeseburger as their first as Correct. their first meal. 
That that would be great. Yes. And one thing I would advise is <laughs> do not train the lipase before feeding the patient because that's something I've seen that practice as well. Because we can start nutrition now because the lipase is trending down, and that's not that shouldn't be the case. And we should say it's it's a it's an unusual thing for someone to need TPN for for pancreatitis. Certainly for us as hospitalists that are mm-hmm. seeing patients, because we we tend to see the mild or moderate cases, not really the severe cases, unless they're coming out of the ICU. But can you talk to like when do you sure. even think about TPN? So uh, we really really do not like TPN. That that's how I say <laughs> it. Um, okay. Um, and uh, even in moderate to severe case of pancreatitis, even a patient in the intensive care unit, we try to find after you start enteral nutrition for them, even if they're not able to tolerate it by mouth. And that could be placing a Dopoff tube into the uh, duodenum or jejunum to feed them. There is, so overall enteral nutrition is better than parenteral, better than TPN. Um, what it does, it maintains intestinal barriers and does reduce bacterial translocation and may prevent you developing from a sterile necrotizing pancreatitis, for example, to an infected necrotizing pancreatitis because you are keeping your mucosa, your GI mucosa intact by feeding them. Even if some in some instances where patients have severe pancreatitis, our intensive care unit, and they're simply just not tolerating even jejunal and they need to be on TP, and we still recommend trickle feed as 5 mLs per hour just for that, just to minimize the risk of infection by maintaining their mucosal barrier by giving their nutrition. In, in our institution, we do have a very low threshold to place post-pyloric intral access and start nutrition within 48 hours, even for severe cases. Okay. Meredith, before we leave this case, can you tell us the conclusion and can you give us just a quick recap of your like the big things that we need to remember from this first case? Yeah, so for Mr. Johnson, who's our 40-year-old with alcohol-induced pancreatitis, um, it sounds like for thinking about other etiologies, we would want to consider potentially gallstone pancreatitis, maybe checking triglycerides um, and uh, his calcium levels. It sounds like the other kind of big points we hit on were other variables that were important for prognosis, such as his BMI and smoking status, and then uh, talked a little bit about kind of the role for best timing for CT scan. So um, while we often get them directly from the emergency room, that maybe the best timing for them is closer to like the 72-hour time point to kind of evaluate for necrosis. So, and how did it end for Mr. Johnson? Did we did we make him better with our, our aggressive fluids and pain control and early feeding? We sure did. Yeah, how's his light base? <laughs> we did get another one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We did not get another one. Yeah, he is at home. He is at home, and I heard he is back to his normal diet, so he's doing quite well. And Paul, we offered him naltrexone at discharge, and we tried to connect oh, him to excellent. resources to uh, quit, uh, you know, to help him uh, with his alcohol use disorder. So now, I think Moni, you're going to tell us about the next case here, right? All right. So next case, Miss Weber, she's 48. She has a history of uh, hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia. She presented to the hospital with a one-day history of nausea, vomiting, mid-epigastric abdominal pain, and said she denies any recent changes to her medications. She denies any tobacco, alcohol, or street drug use. She reports that her birthday was yesterday, and her family took her out for her favorite, which is fried chicken, mac and cheese, mashed potatoes and gravy, and peach cobbler for dessert. 
On arrival to the ER, she was afebrile with a heart rate of 117. Other vitals were relatively normal, mildly hypotensive with a blood pressure of 103 over 76. Exam was unremarkable except for tenderness to palpation in the epigastrium. And her labs were notable for an elevated white blood cell count of 16, uh, mildly decreased hemoglobin of 11.9, um, and then most notably a creatinine of 1.5. Uh, with an unclear baseline, Alkvoss of 350, uh, mildly elevated AST and ALT of 78 and 87, respectively, and a T-billy of 5.1 and lipase of 525. She had an ultrasound of the abdomen that revealed uh, moderate biliary dilatation without signs of obstructing stone. Um, So I think we already kind of talked about this um, in the last case, but just kind of hit it home further. Uh, what utility would there be for cross-sectional imaging now, given that we do see some biliary dilatation versus maybe potentially down the road? And sort of what imaging would you consider um, at what time? So um, this is uh, this case is is also sort of trying to classic or clearly describing a, a case of gallstone pancreatitis, um, where you have the right demographic, right type of patient. Um, presenting with pancreatitis and uh, you're demonstrating the cholestatic pattern, LFT abnormalities and, and ductal dilation. So the question is if there is any utility for cross-sectional imaging at this juncture. And I think the answer remains no. Um, the, you know, you, you already have demonstrated that based on the ultrasound um, I think if there was no evidence of ductal dilation or no evidence of stone disease on the, in the gallbladder, that might be something to consider because there was uncertainty about the diagnosis, whether this is truly gallstone pancreatitis or not. But I think between the evidence you've demonstrated here, I think what we have obtained at this juncture is adequate for making a diagnosis. And say that it, she didn't have that. What um, what imaging would you consider? As I always feel like I get stuck with like, do I get the MRC before I call GI? Do I do I call GI and then get the, you know like I feel like that's sort of the conversation I have in my head every single time. And Meredith hears me have, have this conversation in the workroom very frequently. So th- that's an excellent question. Um, I think getting an MRCP or MRI with uh, with MRCP. It's not going to change much unless the patient is demonstrating signs of cholangitis, which will twist our arm to do an urgent ERCP. If the patient even has a stone there, there is no need for an urgent ERCP within 24 to 48 hours. So you do have time. There is no need sort of to rush for an MRCP. Um, so you can, you have the option of watching her clinical status in the next 24 to 48 hours see how her LFTs progress. If they are downtrending, if they improve by day two or day three after admission or 48 hours, then we can presume the stone has passed or it's not obstructing. But on the other hand, if she is, her LFTs are deteriorating or clinically not getting worse, then you may want to obtain an MRI, MRCP, or console gastroenterology to help making that distinction if she does have an obstructing stone or not. If she has clinical evidence of cholangitis, which it's not being depicted in this case, if you have right upper quadrant tenderness with fever and and jaundice, then that will change. You probably will need a a gastroenterology consult early on and maybe they will uh, recommend or uh, getting an MRCP early on to assess for stone disease. 
obstructing yeah, stone disease or cholangitis. And this, this patient sounds sicker than the last one, right? Because they have maybe a little bit of organ dysfunction with the creatinine and they're borderline hypotensive, just, just more worried about a, about a patient like this. And maybe this isn't the exact right time, but since you're talking about the interventions, I, I think the the timing of the cholecystectomy for a patient, if we if we do confirm that there's stone disease here, the the timing of cholecystectomy is that very controversial? What when to do it for patients? It, it, does it depend on severity? Um, no, I mean, I mean, if we assuming this patient improves in the next few days and she's not deteriorating or evolving into something like severe pancreatitis or um, developing a complication like pseudocyst or Waldorf necrosis, then she should undergo a cholecystectomy within the same admission. So we have fairly strong recommendations uh, by different societies um, that index cholecystectomy is indicated and it should be considered because it will prevent patient being back in hospital or prevent recurrent gallstone pancreatitis um, and if if it that's delayed you you might have face a risk of recurrent gallstone pancreatitis as high as 25 30 percent within six weeks or six to 18 weeks depending on what reference you look at so for mild cases of pancreatitis we do often recommend cholecystectomy within the same index hospitalization before discharge. Yeah. For more severe cases, is that, are those the patients they quote, like cool off and then bring them back in six weeks and do it? So if patient has a severe disease, uh, which which we discussed already with organ failure, or they have developed complications like necrosis, then we do want to wait uh, six weeks after their hospitalization and consider cholecystectomy more of an elective route before and and, and maybe in in a second visit. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to this, Matt, but this patient is a little bit sicker. Um, and so I guess the other question I sometimes have to either answer for myself or for learners is she does have an elevated white cell count. She does meet some SERS criteria. I guess the question is, like, is there a role for antibiotics in her? Or if not now, one would be an appropriate time potentially for that? Um, so that's an excellent question. And I do actually, sometimes when I give this talk to our residents, I keep changing the 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 story or the the case a little bit to see if I can provoke them to start antibiotics or not. And the answer is the only role of antibiotics in acute pancreatitis, if you're treating a complication or cholangitis. By complication, I mean, let's say the patient has aspirated throughout this hospitalization, has now pneumonitis or pneumonia, and you're thinking about that could be the source of fever or infection, or um, patient has UTI or has developed urinary tract infection from prolonged catheterization. Those are the cases that should be treated with antibiotics. But within the first 10 days, just purely a serous should not really push us to start antibiotics. But the only exception would be if patient has cholangitis. Uh, and that, that will be early antibiotic therapy. But we keep doing a scenario, you know, day five, patient is febrile, white count is 20,000. Is it the right time to start the antibiotics? The answer remains no, because you you know when we get hit the ten day mark, then we start getting worried about development of of local complications like an infected Waldorf necrosis or infected necrosis might not be Waldorf by that juncture yet, and then we do start repeating imaging, looking for for um, 
for com these complications and then act on that. How, how how high does the fever tend to get in, in these patients before you're worried it might be something else? Is Are these 101, 102, or is, if you see a fever 104, does that happen? I, I haven't, I don't know that I've seen it with pancreatitis. Um, I mean, I think these are usually fevers within the 101, 102 range. It doesn't usually mount to the point of 104, 105. I haven't, I haven't seen or experienced cases with that like that. But I think what I'm trying to emphasize is having fever within the first seven to ten days, even with leukocytosis and other positive SEERS markers, should not indicate or should not be a reason to initiate antibiotics unless you're you're having bacteremia, you have another source of infection or cholangitis. Um, I think that there is no amount of leukocytosis or left shift or fever that will sort of change or dictate that rule for antibiotics. Not that I'm aware of. And so I think we've sort of been dancing around the topic, but we can kind of go into it more specifically now is kind of talking about all of the complications. And then you sort of started talking about it just now, but like the timeline for when those complications would happen um, after the acute pancreatitis. So um, if you recall what we discussed a little bit earlier about the Atlanta classification, revised classification, we, we sort of described two different pathways um, of or two different distinct patterns of pancreatitis, the interstitial edematous pancreatitis and necrotizing. So in the interstitial edematous pancreatitis, you can develop peripancreatic fluid collections as early as 7 to 10 days. And then if they, if they sort of persist, they can evolve what we call them pseudocysts if they persist beyond you know 30 days or so or four weeks. But you can easily form peripancreatic fluid collections uh, and as early as seven days sometimes we can see them on imaging. On the other path, nec nec necrotizing pathway, you can have either a necrosis of the gland itself or peripancreatic necrosis, which is the surrounding fatty tissue which could develop necrosis or fat necrosis in that and um, usually we also see that on imaging after you know five to seven days we can see evidence of of necrosis and evolving necrosis and then over time over the course of two to three weeks it can eventually form a walled off necrosis that sometimes we refer to as WAN or WAPEN which is encapsulated cavity containing necrosis and that by itself could be sterile or could be infected and there are a lot of differences between them in regards to infected ones are often very very sicker um, very unstable as opposed to sterile are usually just painful with some evidence of sometimes organ compression like uh, gastric outlet obstruction they just can't tolerate PO because this these collections are, are pretty big and uh, eventually they evolve into either a pseudocyst pattern or a, a wall of pancreatic pattern in, in a matter of three to four weeks. So that's helpful to break down the complications. And so then when in that process do you have to act on them? <laughs> um, so the only reason to tackle or treat one of these collection you can break it down to three main reasons or three main categories of reasons. One, um, evidence of infection. 
This is someone, for example, who is day 10 or day 12 in the hospital. They're febrile. They're ill. And now we're worried about if these fluid collections are becoming infected. Um, that's the time that we need to consider doing a CT-guided aspiration and consideration of antibiotics at that juncture. It's often very difficult to perform endoscopic therapy that early on because most often at day 7 to 10, these are not very well-defined collections. Uh, the other reason to go after it is if it's causing symptoms, and that's perhaps the mo main reason that we treat them. Either these collections are fairly large and causing significant pain to the patient, either baseline and postprandial, they can't eat, or it's causing um, organ obstruction, whether it's a, it's compressing the duodenum and it's causing a gastric outlet obstruction, patient can't tolerate PO, or it's compressing the bile duct and causing biliary obstruction. Um, and these are the times that we often have to intervene on and try to uh, drain them. In the case of that there is a concern for infection, we might be forced to do something early on, uh, like a percutaneous drainage, if it's too early within the process and we can't do anything endoscopic because it's not well encapsulated. But for the other reasons, which is usually pain or intolerance, we try, to, if possible, to drag this to three to four weeks and then at that point offer them endoscopic treatment, like an endoscopic cystgastrostomy or endoscopic necrosectomy to treat it. Um, so those are sort of the three main reasons we we have to intervene on these collections. Okay, so continuing the case uh, for Ms. Weber. So she had her acute pancreatitis in the hospital and she stayed as per the recommendation for um, a cholecystectomy. Um, however, her course was complicated by uh, pancreatic fluid collection uh, noted on imaging later, and then she was discharged home. So what would her post-discharge follow-up look like and which specialist does she need to see in uh for follow-up and is there any more imaging required for that follow-up? So that's a great question. Um, that could, you know, who should she see? That could depend on what, you know, expertise are available at, you know, where that patient is. But I think a follow-up with gastroenterology is very reasonable. Um, we don't often re recommend routine imaging unless when we encounter the patient, we are getting concerned about um, worsening of that focal complication or local complications. Where in this case, we talked about she might have formed a pseudocyst or a Waldorf collection. We do not need to really image her just for sake of imaging to see it's getting smaller or larger. If the patient is, has no symptom or minimal symptoms, um, they, have, they have no pain, they're tolerating a full meal and diet, um, that's all they really need. Um, uh, we do often try to check with them again in six months or 12 months down the road to assess for evidence of endocrine or exocrine dysfunction, which could have occurred uh, related to pan pancreas injury. So we often bring them back in six to 12 months after to check a pre-albumin, check an albumin level, check a hemoglobin A1C. But we don't, we won't recommend imaging just for sort of the sake of imaging. Uh, unless they are demonstrating symptoms. If they're symptomatic, then obviously we, we do recommend a cross-sectional imaging uh, to assess, you know, uh, the size and or the effect of this um, fluid collection and to see if there's further endoscopic therapy or percutaneous therapy is needed to address that. 
Okay. And does that change at all if it's necrotic? I know hers was a little bit more interstitial appearing, but does it change at all if it's necrotic in terms of follow-up? Not really. No, it shouldn't really matter. I mean, if she got discharged from the hospital and that was not prohibitive of her discharge, there's no difference in, in that, um, in how she would you know, sort of manifest whether this was a pseudo, develop into pseudocyst or developed a wall of necrosis. It it doesn't matter. Make a dis uh, doesn't change our decision man, uh, decision making. Kave, I was surprised. Uh, can I can I brief before we go on? I wanted to ask about the endocrine exocrine dysfunction because when I was reading about it, and I don't know if these num these numbers sounded high, but it was something like. 20% of people with mild and 33% of people with severe pancreatitis might develop exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, and that was even after just like their first case, and then about something like 23% might develop endocrine insufficiency. That just seemed really high This for people to have post-pancreatitis diabetes and, the, and, and then also the exocrine dysfunction. So can you talk about how you recognize those other than checking A1C for the endocrine dysfunction? Um, so these numbers, I think, are, are pretty accurate. I think they are they're, they're correct, um, and it's something that you know, and especially in the outpatient setting, we, we constantly think about how do we assess beyond labs. I mean, for exocrine dysfunction, maybe a little bit easier to go based on symptomatology. We you know we we talk to the patient about their weight, we assess them for steatoria if they're having that, if they have any. Uh, complain about foul-smelling stools or, or things like that. That's something to consider if you're losing weight. But we very routinely at six month and twelve month post an acute pancreatitis check their prealbumin. We check their fat-soluble vitamins A, E, and D, and um, and try to give it assess about nutritional status if they are if we're seeing subtle signs of um, exocrine dysfunction. Um, endocrine might be a little bit more obvious, especially if they are discharged from the hospital with with higher than usual blood sugars. That's something that many times it's it's seen on um, follow up checks or follow up um, routine blood tests. Um, and if that happens, they might require you know diabetes management or or lifestyle changes for pre diabetes, depending on uh, how severe it is. Um, but it is it is a little bit it is common and sometimes underrecognized. Yeah, that was those numbers were scary because we see so much pancreatitis. It just it uh, yeah. I guess we we need to be more on the lookout for it. Yeah, I feel like there was an article that said something about like twenty percent of patients have like a pancreatic duct disconnection or something. I think it was related to that, and that kind of blew my mind too. But no, maybe that was just me. Probably in the more severe cases, I think in mild cases it's less than that. But um, so yeah, so that's 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 these are sort of good tests for follow up, and then maybe an A one C in six months just to see how they're how they're how they're looking at. And just to clarify, it's for severe cases that the percentages are that high, right? Well, I the mild. So the this is from the Lancet seminar article that I had mentioned, and they said that with mild for exocrine, they said mild it could be up to twenty percent of patients could have exocrine insufficiency, and with severe pancreatitis, it could be up to thirty three percent could have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So we can put those those uh, in the show notes, the references. Yeah, I was I was surprised. That's why I was asking. It just seemed it seemed uh, it seemed high. <laughs> it sounds bad. All right, but I think we have to wrap up here. Um, so we probably uh, is there are there any last minute questions, Meredith or Monique, other than getting some take home points? Nope, no. 
Okay. So Kave, can you give us a couple, if you had a, if the audience was going to remember two or three things about what we discussed tonight, can you, can you remind them what you want them to, to know about pancreatitis? Um, I have like, I wrote down like three or four points, which I thought would be, which I see often, um, opportunities for improvement. Um, one is you cannot give too much fluid in acute pancreatitis. I mean, that's probably a little bit exaggerated what I'm saying, but it's just trying to you know, have a good take-home message that that early resuscitation within first 24 hours, 12 to 24 hours, is really key in these patients and preventing them from getting necrotizing pancreatitis. I think CT scan is really not needed in the first ad- admission, um, and it could be delayed up two to three days if there is evidence of organ dysfunction or uh, lack of improvement. And then antibiotics doesn't sears by itself or leukocytosis or fever should not mandate antibiotic use or empiric antibiotic use. It is absolutely fine to treat um, um, focal issue like cholangitis, uh, pulmonary infection, pneumonias, but empiric is not recommended within the first seven to ten days. And I think the last thing will be, you know, things to think about transitioning these care of these patients to outpatient setting. Uh, be on the lookout for uh, long-term endocrine exocrine dysfunction in these patients. Fantastic. We will fade this into the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Anyone's game? Oh, there we go. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. By the way, BT Dubs, guys, in the future, if you're waiting for me to say yummy, it will not be happening. Um, That's why I jumped in. Each month, you'll get our... (laughs) Thank you. Heroic work. Um, So anyway, you're signing up to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. Give us some stars on Spotify or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writers, producers, artists for this episode, Moni Amin and Meredith Trubit, and to Beth Garbus-Garbatelli, who is our executive producer and runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Meredith Trubit. I've been Dr. Moni Got Money, I mean. <laughs> and as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>